on, people. All right. Man, good morning, everyone. I'm excited about today's, <clears throat> excuse me, passage in Revelation. Um, we're actually in week number 28. I've called this episode of our series on Revelation, The Accuser, Evicted, and Bound. So normally, I give you my sermon preview near the end, right before the personal or you know, devotional section. I'm going to give it to you twice this week because I was told it was really good. The victory won by Jesus at the cross was so complete, Satan isn't even allowed to accuse us of being sinners anymore. Have you, uh, have you ever been embarrassed by someone making a loud public accusation against you? There he is, he did it, or there she is, she's the one. Have you ever made a mistake, whether personal, professional, and had someone in your life who seemed to enjoy telling everyone about it? Or is it all just me? <laughs> Has someone ever secretly, anonymously, gone behind your back to make an accusation against you? That's never fun, is it? In my first full-time ministry job, actually it was my second job, I had a person like that who seemed constantly joyful over carrying a torch for accusing me. And I have to admit, it's not like I didn't give them any ammunition. But I remember how this person came after me aggressively, publicly, full of hypocritical self-righteousness, and they reveled in anything that I might do wrong. <clears throat> I also remember, though, when I had a mentor who was in leadership in a very public meeting where I was being accused of some things, becoming my advocate. I still remember his words. He says, yeah, we know about that. Joe came to me immediately when he realized his mistake. He asked for forgiveness and he asked for my help in resolving it. We began the process several weeks ago. Joe's done everything I've asked of him. The matter has been fully resolved. Is there anything else? But my accuser kept going back. Well, yeah, but, well, yeah, but. And my advocate, my mentor, my friend said, I told you, in this meeting, we aren't discussing this anymore. Do you have anything else? I got to tell you, I felt humbled, and I felt loved when my friend and my mentor became my advocate and stood up for me in public. And also, I kind of enjoyed it when he shut down my accuser. <laughs> I did. I, I liked that. I texted that friend and advocate today, and I told him, you know, you're just like Jesus. And he says, I know. <laughs> it's very funny. It's very funny. What today's passage does, it's a beautiful passage. It pulls back the cosmic veil on the greatest failure of our great accuser. And this is a beautiful, uplifting passage. Let's read it from Revelation chapter 12, starting in verse 7. Now war arose in heaven, the dragon from last week, Satan. The dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan. That's in bold for a reason. We'll get to that. The deceiver of the world. He was thrown down to earth and his angels with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. 
For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. The history of this passage is very critical to understanding what we should do with it today. This is the ancient accuser. And there are two names in this passage that you'll notice that are given to this accuser. The first is devil. The word actually means deceiver. It doesn't mean someone with horns and a pitchfork and a tail. It means deceiver or liar. There's a second name given to him, Satan, which means specifically accuser. Before Jesus came to earth, Satan had a favorite pastime. The accuser had a favorite pastime. And that was accusing those whom God loves, those whom God has chosen, those whom God is redeeming. Because the accuser, Satan, knows that if he can just destroy the redemptive process of just one of God's elect, the whole plan of redemption falls apart. That's how high the stakes are for each one of us. Think about it. What would happen if God's plan of redemption failed for just one of his chosen? Jesus, after all, said, all that the Father has given to me will come to me and no one can pluck them out of my hand. That would make God a liar and the whole plan of redemption suspect. The fact is, if you are a follower of Jesus, Satan, the accuser, resents you because of how God shows you, how God loves you, and how God has redeemed you. This, in fact, this hatred of this redemption process is the core motivation behind why the accuser constantly scours the earth, going back and forth, looking for redeemed people to accuse. You know, John's readers would have made a direct association with this name, Satan, with several specific Old Testament stories of Satan accusing God's redeemed. Excuse me, the two most well-known examples of Satan the accuser are found in the book of Job and in the book of Zechariah. Look what happens in Job chapter 1, verse 6 and 7. There was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. Those are angels. And Satan, also accuser, came among them. The Lord said to accuser, from where have you come? Accuser answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. So here's what we see. The accuser has access to two places, all of earth and the throne of heaven. You see that. Satan knew Job and who Job was before God pointed him out. You guys know the story. God says, have you considered my servant Job? And Satan says, yeah, I know who he is. Satan was always, the accuser, always hunting down people whom God had given undeserved favor to. And Job was a righteous man, not because of his own character or because of his patience. That's not what the story of Job is about, how great a person Job is. He wasn't any better than us. Job was righteous because God had chosen him and redeemed him and given everything he needed to be righteous. An accuser came before God in heaven, ready with an accusation that Job was righteous only because of all that God had given him. And Satan happily brought great suffering, which by the way is a symbol of the tribulation, Job's suffering. And Job's life became a train wreck. But you know what God did? God kept Job's soul safe. Does that sound familiar with some of the things we've seen in the book of Revelation? See, the story of Job isn't a celebration of Job's patience. 
It's a celebration of how the accuser came against him, but God's chosen will never fail. Another story is an example of accuser, Satan, accusing a specific high priest of failing to follow specific Levitical clothing laws when it comes to performing sacrifices in the temple. Zechariah chapter 3, verse 1. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. Satan accused Joshua of wearing ritually soiled garments in the temple. He wants God to kill Joshua the high priest for this failure. See, this is what Satan did throughout history before Christ. He scoured the earth so he could bring accusations before God in heaven. His goal to turn God against those he has chosen for redemption and to set us at odds with the Father is his driving passion as he tries to destroy the bloodline of Jesus. That's the history of the passage. That's what John's readers would have immediately thought of when he says the word Satan. So look at the theological aspect. This is some deep stuff. I've called this the war in heaven. Now, some of you might be kind of wandering a little bit. Maybe you don't like the history side. I need you to lean forward and listen closely to this section today. It has critical insights of when and how Satan was expelled from heaven and bound to earth, things you may not have heard or understood before. First of all, we see this appearance of this guy, Michael. Now, this isn't a sermon about angels, but it's important to understand the spiritual realm of this battle of good and evil. Michael, the archangel, is a key player in the spiritual war that's going on in heaven, described throughout Scripture, not just here. He's also a key player in the story of redemption. Michael is an archangel, the strongest of all the angels. He's always described as being in a battle with Satan, the accuser, several times in Scripture. Matter of fact, here's one example in Daniel chapter 10. The prince of the king of Persia, that's not a human, by the way. That is about somebody who has spiritual authority over government. The prince of the king of per kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days. This is a demon withstanding Daniel. But Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me. For I was left there with the king of Persia. In Jude 9. But when the archangel Michael was contending with the devil, and I left off the rest of it, but I just want you to see that throughout Scripture, there's probably about 15 other examples I could have brought up here. Example of Michael being mentioned in a wrestling match with Satan the accuser. So many believe when you talk about this idea of Satan being cast out of heaven. Many believe Satan, the accuser, and his demons were cast out before creation. I used to, but, but not anymore. We know the accuser, if you think about it, it's very clear, had access to heaven before Jesus came, did he not? He was there to accuse Job. He was there to accuse Joshua. He was there to accuse many other people. He did it every day. He went to and fro, up and down on the earth, looking for people to accuse, and he brings his list of dirt to the throne and says, why do you love these people? And all of chapter 12, we looked at some of it last week, we'll look at some of it next week, all of chapter 12 indicates that this war in heaven that many believe happened before creation actually has been stretching from the fall of Adam and Eve all the way until Jesus ascended to heaven. 
from the cross. This war was about the bloodline of Christ and accusing the brethren. And it lasted from the fall all the way till Jesus came and did his work. This is why we see so many references in the scripture to Michael battling Satan. All of them, every time, is referring to this war in heaven that Revelation is talking about in chapter 12. And when Satan's war failed to destroy the line of Jesus and Jesus himself, he lost. The war is over. Satan and his demons were with authority from Jesus evicted from heaven. Michael and his angels, with authority from God, evict Satan or accuser, and his demon horde, which we have studied a few times in this series, they're all evicted by force and bound to earth. They can no longer leave this realm. By the way, just in case you doubt this, you remember when Jesus sent out his disciples in twos? And they went out and they were preaching, and they came back, this is what they said to him when they returned. Look at this verse. When the 27 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. They were surprised at the authority they had over demons. Look what Jesus says to that. And he said to them, well, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Wow. How did we miss that? This is Jesus describing how the war is playing out and its end game right before their eyes. The victory of Jesus on the cross had far-reaching impacts across the entire realm of creation. At the moment, Jesus defeated sin and death and resurrected and ascended to heaven, there was no more room for the accuser there. He is evicted. From that moment, Satan was bound to this earth he no longer had the ability to go before God and accuse God's chosen, his redeemed. See? <laughs> it's a great illustration. Get out of here. <laughs> so look what happens after this eviction. There is an eviction celebration. You know, how bad would it be if a landlord evicted you and then had a big party to celebrate it? That'd be kind of insulting, wouldn't it? Well, that's what's happening in heaven when Jesus, is, or when Jesus evicts Satan. With Satan's eviction, ev eviction, the heavenly hosts begin to celebrate. The accuser of our brethren is cast down. He has been defeated. And those celebrating, those celebrating this eviction are the multitude. They are, in fact, that church in victory. Those in Christ who have passed from this earthly realm. They are celebrating the dragon's decisive defeat. He no, he no longer can go to and from heaven and earth, accusing God's redeemed. They are also celebrating which will happen in a short time, Satan's inevitable demise to soon come. The demise Satan also knows is coming in a very short time. Matter of fact, I'll show this to you. There's a law in Deuteronomy that is written about how to deal with false accusers and what will be done to them, and Satan knows he is guilty of it, and he knows his time is short. Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 18 and 19. And if the witness is a false witness and has accused his brother falsely, then you shall do to him as he had meant to do to his brother. 
you shall, so you shall purge the evil from your midst. Isn't that awesome? But there's this other part of our passage, the woe to the earth part. The passage ends with a dire warning to the inhabitants of earth. We're going to learn more about that in the weeks to come. But this right here, this woe to earth, is this binding of Satan that we read about a lot in Revelation. Satan is bound to earthly limits. The accuser can no longer go before the throne. And he is bound here until the end of the age when Jesus comes and destroys all evil. And Satan is livid. He is angry. He's angry that he's been evicted from heaven, and he's angry that there's a celebration about his evicted ev eviction. He's angry that he is bound to our dimension, but on earth, he still has power to cause havoc and destruction. That's why John says, but woe to the inhabitants of the earth. And Satan, the accuser, knows his time is short. He is desperate, he is afraid, he is angry, he is looking for someone to take it out on. He cannot accuse or stop our redemption, but he can still do what he did to Job. That's the only power he has left. This marks the beginning of the age of this tribulation we've been learning about that we are currently in. He is angry. Woe to the earth. He despises your redemption, church. He despises how God loves you even though you don't deserve to be loved. You deserve to be judged just like he will be. He resents, boy, does he ever resent God's blatant, undeserved favoritism for us, the redeemed. Your redemption, personally and ours corporately, eats at him every second he is bound on this earth. He can't war against heaven anymore. So he turns his wrath against the woman who represents the church. That's the tribulation. That's our topic next week. All right, personal section. What are we supposed to do with this? This is powerful stuff. Our accuser is silenced. I'm going to put the sermon preview up again just to remind you what we're talking about. <clears throat> the victory won by Jesus at the cross was so complete, Satan isn't even to, allowed to accuse us of being sinners anymore. Do you remember a story in the New Testament, what Jesus did for a woman who was being accused of adultery by a bunch of hypocritical men who wanted to stone her? Do you remember that story? And Jesus says, I love this. When they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. She stood up and, he, Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you or the Greek word accused you? She said, No, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on sin no more. As they accused her, it seemed that Jesus was wholly uninterested and impressed by their accusations against her, even though she was probably guilty. And he bent down, the scripture says, and he was writing something in the ground. You know what I think it was? I think it was likely this law in Deuteronomy about false witnesses and what to do with them. And then he says, you know, I'll tell you what, you guys want a stoner? The one who's without sin, you throw the first stone. Then they all begin to put their stones down and leave until 
Lastly, Jesus was there with her alone. Can you imagine for this woman how precious that moment was for this poor accused? All the accusers left with their tail between their legs, and she's there with Jesus alone. Imagine that. And what did Jesus mean when he said to her, go and sin no more? That sounds like a really hard task to give a woman who's just been accused of adultery. <laughs> Guys, you remember what Satan the accuser said was the reason Job was righteous, because God had given him everything? Duh, he's right. Look what Peter says. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Jesus sent her out with the power for everything she would need for life and godliness, the same power he sent the disciples with. That's why he could say, go, sin no more. Look what Paul says in Colossians. He canceled the record of debt that stood against us, that thing that we are being accused of. He canceled the record of debt that stood against us. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities, the prince of Persia, putting them to an open shame. Oh, I love that part. By triumphing, tri by triumphing over them in him. Before the cross, here's what happened. Before the cross, Satan went to and fro on the earth with a whole list of dirt looking for redeemed people to accuse. Before the cross, every day he came before God in heaven mocking us, accusing us of every failure and flaw the accuser could find. Before the cross, our Old Testament brothers and sisters, their only defense was a temporary ritualistic covering of their sin through the temple. Before the cross, the accused stood before God with dirty garments, just like Joshua the high priest, while the patient father overlooked their filth until Jesus came. But after the cross, remember this from Revelation? Our dirty garments are removed and replaced with what? White robes of righteousness. The things that we could be accused of are nailed to the cross. They are canceled. They are wiped away along with any evidence they ever existed. Accuser, what are you talking about? Joe's not an idiot. <laughs> Some would debate that. <laughs> the things we be accused of are wiped away. And after the cross, Jesus renders Satan's accusations pathetic. Pointless, powerless, because there's nothing for us to be accused of in God's eyes. After the cross, Satan is no longer even allowed to go before the throne of God to accuse us anymore. He's been bound to earth. After the cross, the dragon, that old serpent, the devil, and Satan, the accuser, can't even speak about you anymore. No matter how much he hates you, no matter how much he wants you to be judged, he is totally powerless and can't even talk to God about you. Talk to the hand, dragon. <laughs> Jesus has won. No wonder heaven was celebrating. Okay, this is beautiful. Are you ready? Remember the story I told you about when I was accused and my mentor became my advocate? 
This next verse I'm about to share with you was written by John soon after he wrote the book of Revelation in his first letter. 1 John chapter 2, verse 1. Look what he says. <clears throat> My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate, not an accuser, an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Church, <clears throat> not only are we forgiven, not only can we not be accused anymore, but God's grace goes even further than evicting our accuser. Not only has your relentless accuser been evicted from heaven, he has been replaced by your relentless advocate. Every day, Satan the accuser would stand accusing you. Now every day there's an advocate, a perfect one with all power and authority, advocating for you. Now instead of the Satan the accuser constantly before the throne, you have the opposite. You have an advocate who is worthy of the throne. Our Jesus, who took our sins to the cross, is now our eternal, relentless, 24-7, 365 advocate to the Father. Father, it's all been nailed to the cross. It's been canceled. They are blameless. They have no more filthy rags. They are in white robes. And their accuser has been evicted. So, and I know some of you are struggling with this today. You're struggling at home, struggling at work, struggling in recovery, struggling with depression, anxiety. Let me just tell you something. I'm not saying that I can make all those things go away. I can't. Because we live in a world where the enemy still has power. But when you hear the enemy whispering in your ear that you should be shamed, when you hear the enemy trying to accuse you, tear you down, let me tell you something. His accusations are feckless and a pitiful activity of a desperate person. Because through the cross, your Jesus has shut the accuser's relentless, loud, obnoxious pie hole. He has. He's evicted him from the heavenly realm for all eternity. And he has, Jesus, become your eternal advocate. Boy, it sure is good to have a friend in high places, isn't it? Dear Jesus, oh Jesus, thank you so much for shutting down our accuser, for defeating him at the cross. Thank you for his eviction from heaven for all eternity. Thank you that he has nothing else he can say about us to you. And Jesus, it's amazing because we know that if he was allowed to accuse us, there'd be plenty <laughs> to accuse us of. But for whatever reason, by your grace and by your mercy, you have nailed all that to the cross. You've canceled it out. Not only that, now in heaven at the right hand of the Father as our advocate. Boy, we don't deserve it, but we sure will take it. Jesus, we love you. Thank you for all you've done for us. Thank you for winning the war in heaven. Now we can't wait for you to return. 